0: Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Eric Crittenden, Chief Investment Officer of Standpoint Asset Management. Standpoint creates all-weather investment strategies and we talk to Eric about his approach to blending different asset classes together, trend following, investing in environments like the 1970s where there was high inflation, and some of his original research on things like small cap stock performance and more. Developing investment strategies that investors can stick with regardless of the environment is something Eric has vast knowledge and experience in. As always, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion with Standpoint. Eric Cranton Eric, hi, how are you? Thanks for joining us today.
2: I'm great. Thanks for having me.
0: We're going to talk about all weather investing and some of the various investing strategies that you run as a firm and that you've developed. But before we do that, we were kind of talking just before we started the podcast about you know, getting some of these terms right when we're talking about these types of strategies and our listeners and audience tend to be a little bit more individual retail investors and there's financial advisors too but we just want to start out with you by maybe um outlining or discussing some basic terms that i think will be important as we go on in the conversation so um i'm gonna put out four of these and if you just want to kind of work through them um, that would be great so the first is trend following the second is managed futures The third is CTAs. And the last one is all weather investing or an all weather portfolio. So I know that's kind of a lot in the first question, but I thought it would be good to try to define those things.
2: Sure, yeah, thanks, Justin. Uh, I think it is important that we all be using the same glossary. So, you know, I've been in the business for 24 years and I've talked to a lot of people that purport to run trend following programs and people that, that. um say they invest in trend following programs. And the reality is if you ask 10 different people, you're gonna get 10 different answers as to what trend following is. So a high level overview is that trend following is a, is a philosophy and a process of participating in trends, hopefully profitably. The idea is to identify trends at some point in their life before the end of the trend and participate. Um, generally speaking in our industry, and we'll talk about CTA here in a minute, Um, Trend following is symmetrical, meaning you'll go long or you'll go short. You're indifferent to market direction. That's kind of the plain vanilla definition of what trend following is. It's it's attempting to capture directional moves either up or down. My philosophy on it is a little different than than my peers. I, I view trend following as a means of avoiding being on the wrong side of big trends. I see capital preservation and not being on the wrong side of large magnitude or long duration trends as being very valuable to your compounded return. I see that as more important than, than capturing returns, or at least mathematically speaking, it contributes more to your compounded return. So, But like I mentioned a minute ago, it means different things to different people. But on a high level, it's just being on the right side of the big moves, the sustained moves, and doing whatever is necessary to make that happen. The other phrase you brought up was managed futures. So managed futures is a word, another phrase that means different things to different people. Um, But broadly speaking, people that implement trend following strategies, people that trade things like futures contracts and forwards contracts are considered to be part of the managed futures industry. And a lot of financial advisors and retail investors aren't overly familiar with this industry because it's, it's primarily been the stomping grounds of institutions and pension funds and endowments and accredited investors and and that's unfortunate, but that's the way it's been in the past. But Over the past 15 years or so, those barriers have started to come down and you've seen kind of a blending or a merging of managed futures coming over into the securities industry and being offered in things like ETFs, mutual funds, um, smaller managed accounts, so on and so forth. But managed futures essentially is referring to that industry where you have CTAs, you have portfolio managers that manage portfolios of futures contracts and forward contracts uh, the other term CTA. So that, uh, stands for commodity trading advisor. And so that would be the firm that manages a portfolio of futures contracts on behalf of clients. So there's also CPO, which stands for commodity pool operator. And that's what we are at standpoint. Um, it's closely related to a CTA. So, you know, if you buy a mutual fund that has stocks in it, it's going to have the advisor, uh, it's going to have the portfolio manager. Um, if they're using a lot of futures or a lot of forward contracts or whatnot, it's probably going to be run by a CTA or a CPO that's regulated inside of the managed futures industry. In our case, we're regulated by both. We're regulated by the SEC on the security side, but also the NFA and the CFTC on the futures side. So, I don't know if that definition actually helped or if it hurt, but it is what it is. Um, what was the last phrase? All weather?
0: So the, yeah, all weather portfolio or all weather investing.
2: Okay, so this is another one where it depends on who you ask. So I'm going to give you my definition
0: of an all weather portfolio.
2: It's kind of like I like to use metaphors and analogies at times. So I'm gonna I'm gonna use a auto metaphor this time. So you guys might not be old enough to remember a time um, when there were no SUVs on the road. So in the 1980s, there was no such thing as an SUV. I think the Ford Bronco was the first, you know, considered to be an SUV. At least they weren't popular, right? So, you know, you you either bought a sports car, a luxury sedan, a motorcycle, or a four-wheel drive, or something like that, specialized vehicles um, that were great. You know, a Corvette's great on an open highway at five in the morning with no traffic. Uh, a four-by-four four is great if you have to cross a stream or go on a, a rough off-road fishing trip or whatnot. Uh, the dreaded station wagon was great if you had you know six kids and all their soccer equipment and whatnot. But at some point, some really smart person figured out that an SUV um, could serve 90% of all those purposes. It could be luxurious enough for a night out on the town. It could be durable enough to go off-road to some degree. Um, it can even be pretty sporty. Not quite a Corvette, but sporty enough to make it worthwhile um, for you. So I look at that as an all-terrain vehicle. Drive it on the freeway, night out on the town, uh, drive it off-road. An all-weather portfolio is basically the SUV of portfolios. It's, um, it, it, Optimally, you'd want your all-weather portfolio to work almost equally as well in all market environments. So inflation shouldn't be a terrible problem for an all-weather portfolio. Deflation shouldn't be a terrible problem. Runaway growth shouldn't be a terrible problem. You know, an all-weather portfolio should be designed to work reasonably well in all market environments. Now you don't get something for nothing. It's not alchemy. It will underperform whatever is most closely calibrated to that market environment. That SUV is not gonna keep up with the Corvette and it's not going to be as effective as the four-wheel-drive uh, pickup truck off road but it's good enough to do reasonably well in all market environments. And that's really important to investors because it solves two problems. One, it allows people to stay invested and not make emotional decisions when they have the wrong asset for the current market environment. And two, the way compounding works is it actually rewards this kind of splitting the middle behavior. Um, because by having an all-weather portfolio that's got uncorrelated assets in there, working together as a team mitigates the volatility and the risk in the portfolio but it doesn't necessarily dilute the returns between the different asset classes so you can maintain your compounded return over a long period of time but really reduce the risk so that's the motivation behind putting together an all-weather portfolio and I'm hope I hope that makes sense
0: yeah I love that that's that's great I love that analogy and I think that's a good way to sort of define all those things so you. Thank-
1: i wanted to ask you um you know one of the challenges
0: i would think in building
1: an all-weather portfolio is there's so many assets out there you can invest in and just looking you know i know you guys have a broad base group of assets you, you invest in i'm wondering how you think about that decision in, in terms of which which assets belong which assets add value to an all weather portfolio and which ones don't how you think about sort of which assets comprise your portfolio
2: there's several different ways i can go about that answering that question. And I could probably talk for two weeks. So I'm going to focus on the two most important concepts. Um, and a little bit is, is you know, my philosophy is going to bleed into that because uh, my philosophy and my team's philosophy guides our decisions. So the first thing I'll say is that I believe there are structural risk premium available in the markets. And if you want to collect those and have them show up in your account in the form of returns then you have to provide some sort of a valuable service to the marketplace you know you have to be accretive to the ecosystem that you're entering Um, i do not subscribe to the gladiator mindset that of alpha and you got to get in there and be faster and stronger and smarter than everyone else i think that's an idealized um state of mind that is more you know movies and books but in real life if you can offer a valuable service to the marketplace it will welcome you and you will find your niche you'll own that piece of real estate in the ecosystem and you'll collect your returns. So if we look at things like stocks, bonds, um, metals, grains, energy, livestock, these are all markets and they were designed for different reasons. Um, but if they persist, um, there's gonna be some sort of a structural risk premium there that you can collect if your behavior um, allows you to collect it. In other words, if you participate in the market in a way that actually adds value to the other market participants, you can collect that risk premium. So that's my philosophy going into it. It's, it's not that I'm trying to be faster, smarter, or better than everyone else. I'm trying to earn that return by providing liquidity to whoever on the other side of the trade, isn't profit seeking, or um, they're willing to suffer some sort of an opportunity cost because it's worth it to them. So it, it doesn't seem related right now, but I think it'll tie back to what I'm about to say next. So, your question was uh, about, you know, how do we, there's so many markets to choose from, how do we pick which ones? Well, the first thing I look at is liquidity. Um, because if you think about what I just said, if you're going to provide a service to someone on the other side of the trade, and you want to extract profits, and you want to manage a few billion dollars, you need liquidity. Because liquidity is the evidence that there is demand for some sort of a risk transfer, uh, and that there's some sort of a risk premia there. So. How you measure liquidity is different for different markets. In stocks, you know, it could be free float, it could be full float, it could be volume, or some other metric that you come up with. In futures, it could be open interest, it could be volume, um, it could be open interest multiplied by you know the the notional value of the contract um, you've got to come up with some sort of a mechanism for determining, you know, what is the proxy for the underlying risk premia and the hedging pressure and the kind of stuff that I look for in a market. So for me and futures simply put, that's pretty much just the open interest. And on the stock side, it's the free float market cap. So I scan all the different tradable assets in the world that we're legally allowed to access from the U S and I do this twice a year. Uh, And then I compile that data into a database and then I run some calculations on it and I sort them from most liquid to least liquid. And then I go down the list and there's a cutoff point at some point. Right now it's the 75 most liquid futures markets in the world and that's on the future side. And then on the equity side, it's essentially the MSCI World Index, which is market cap weighted um, developed nations. And that happens to be my current opportunity set. We'll probably expand that in the future as we get bigger. But right now, I feel like that's completely suitable uh, for our needs. Does that answer your question?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I was wondering, um, you know, one of the things that we've all been spoiled as investors, because, you know, if you look at the period from 1980 to now, I mean, we've basically had rates falling the entire time. We've had very little inflation. And so we've, you know, most investors build these stock and bond portfolios and come to rely on them. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what the weakness with that is and you know what, what has happened in history where maybe that portfolio is not the optimal portfolio.
2: Yeah, Jack, that's a dangerous topic. <laughs> <laughs> I get the feeling you guys are going to ask me some tough questions. Trying to questions, get the controversial so. stuff in here. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's, a, it's a topic that advisors don't like to talk about. And so candidly, yes, we've been spoiled. You know, From 1982 until now, has probably been one of the greatest, you know, multi-decade stretches in the history of humanity. You, it doesn't, a lot of people don't feel like they've made a lot of money, but you've made a lot of money and you've made it easily by being long, um, convenient risk assets. You know, stocks have gone up, multiples have gone up, um, economic conditions for as much as we complain about right now, I mean, it can get an order of magnitude worse than anything we've seen since 1980. And then, you know, when I was a kid, interest rates were 18%, you know, in the late 70s. Um, Now they're almost zero. Um, So you started off with a really high nominal interest rate, and you finished with a really low nominal interest rate. So you got to collect all those high interest rates, and you got the capital gains from the bond prices going up as the interest rates went down. So you got the double sort, you know, the dual momentum from that. And that's why you have a 7 or 8% annualized return from owning the 10-year U.S. Treasury during that period of time. That's an astronomical number because that's essentially a risk-free asset, in nominal terms, at least. So uh, yeah, people have been spoiled, and they're kind of extrapolating that out into the future, and they just expect 10 from stocks and 5 to 6, maybe 7 from bonds. And um, they think a 60-40 portfolio of that is going to give them that in the future. What they don't realize is these markets are not utilities. You know they were not designed to make retirement easy they weren't designed to be atm machines or utilities they're designed for capital formation or risk transfer and the mechanism underneath the hood is to clear the market and we've kind of co-opted them and said well let's just make these things work for investors um, you can't rely on that forever so to your point does the 60 40 the 60 40 portfolio have a weakness It does. It has a blind spot, and no one's seen this blind spot since the 1970s, and I would characterize it as uh, it has a a serious weakness uh, if you ever get a period of stagflation. So if you get rising rates, um, bond prices will go down. If rates are below the rate of inflation like we see right now, your real return will almost certainly be negative. And if stocks don't go up when bonds go down, if, if stocks and bonds go down together, like they did several times during the 1970s, you're going to experience losses and volatility that you probably not prepared for. So it's one of those infrequent risks that people lose respect for. Um, and they take things for granted because they haven't seen it during their investing career or their lifetime. But it is lurking and it's a very real risk.
1: How do you think about bonds? You know, it seems like if, if you're looking at bonds logically right now, I mean, you have very low yields, you don't have that much room to go down. It seems like, you know, there's this popular narrative, which may very well be true. You know, I have, I have trouble discounting it myself that bonds are just not a place you want to be right now, but then they do serve a purpose when you look at building an all-weather portfolio. So how do you look at that balance between, you know, bonds don't look very attractive right now, but also they still have a, a purpose in my portfolio?
2: so i've tried to have that conversation with people and that's an even more dangerous topic because um what i found is that more than 90 percent of people out there are absolutely married to their bond positions so i've tried a couple of different ways to to broach that topic and um the one that i found to be effective you guys might probably think this is funny is um i would tell people i want i want to i want to get your opinion on, on a new product and I'm just going to tell you what the product looks and feels like, and the expected returns and whatnot. And you let me know if you think this is a something I should pursue. And I say, you know, it's got, and, and this was a year ago. And I said the expected return is about one percent a year. And um, it's very sensitive to interest rates. Meaning, if interest rates go up, this thing could easily lose twenty, thirty, maybe maybe forty percent. So it's very very sensitive to interest rates um, the only way this thing is gonna you know have more than a five percent return is if you know yield the yield on the ten-year goes down to negative five or six um, and it's all ordinary income for the most part it's all ordinary income you know I'm, I'm describing the ten-year treasury to them without telling them it's the ten-year treasury so when I go through all the attributes of it, you know, people look at me cross-eyed and they're like, why Why are you telling me any of this? That's the worst investment I've ever heard of. Get out of my office. Why would I have any interest in ever investing in something with with those attributes? And then I tell them it's the 10-year treasury and they get real mad. <laughs> but the point has been made because they decided that that was an atrocious um, investment that they could never make. In fact, I had a couple people say, well, I would, I would, I would expect a lawsuit if I did that. It's the 10-year treasury. So you tell me why are you investing in it? Um, and they don't have a good answer. So I like to invert things and do things backwards to see where people really stand. So um, I don't know, is that, is that a topic? I mean, I think you asked a specific question. That probably wasn't a specific answer, though.
1: I'm just wondering, how do you think about that when you're building an all-weather portfolio? I mean, do you, do you consider not having bonds if, if it gets too extreme? Do you underweight them? I mean, how do you think about that when you're building a portfolio?
2: It's tough, right? Because historically, bonds have been very, very productive um, and essential to, to to most portfolios. But when I look at it now, you know the yields are below the rate of inflation, and when I look at the calculus of the macroeconomy, I look at it and say, "Well, if I'm the government, I'm gonna I'm gonna monetize that debt, but through yield curve control and just have inflation outpace bonds." I mean, that, that's exactly what I'm gonna try to do. I don't know if it'll work, but they're good. That's the plan, um, and everyone knows it. So yeah, I mean, they're a terrible investment as illustrated by the example, when I explain the attributes to someone, they all say that's a terrible investment yet they still own the bonds. So how do I justify, I I have no interest in owning bonds, but I'm going to argue the other side real quick um, because I've had a few advisors actually put up a credible argument and say, all right, well, if I don't do bonds, what do I do? If I go all in on stocks, it's a lawsuit waiting to happen. Because, I mean, if the stock market goes down, everyone's going to look back and say, well, obviously it was overvalued and obviously it was volatile. And um, you can't do that. They can't go all in on stocks. So REITs, convertible arbitrage, market neutral, all these things are positively correlated with stocks when stock market's going down. They might be uncorrelated on the way up, but I mean, everyone's seen with their own eyes that most of these alternative investments all of a sudden magically become highly correlated with stocks when stocks are going down. So they don't want to do that and they don't like the fees. and They don't like the taxes and they don't like the homework and having to explain these alternative investments. So they feel like they have nowhere to go. So they say, Eric, essentially what you're telling me is go to cash, right? That bonds are a bad bet. I'm not doing any of these alternatives anymore. This is what they tell me. So you're telling me to go to cash. Well, cash is just bonds with no yield. It's the same thing. You're still suffering the inflation drag. So I'm right back to bonds saying, well, at least get some yield rather than no yield and i didn't really have a good answer to that other than well you have to find an alternative investment that you actually believe in if you don't believe in reits and you don't believe in all the other ones you know the list you know of potential alternatives actually narrows down to the to the one that i actually believe in so let's have a conversation about that so to answer your question i don't i don't i'm not willing to have a dedicated long position in bonds right now because of the attributes or i expect to have a negative real rate of return Most people don't know that corporate bonds and government bonds in the U.S. had a negative real rate of return from 1940 to 1983. Negative. Then the nominal return was was positive. It was a small number, but the real return was negative for 43 years. I don't think people are aware of that. So that can happen again. And that's a good chance that is what will happen again. So I, I don't have any interest in owning bonds, but I can understand why other people do if they feel trapped.
1: Yeah, I think your, your argument about having to find a suitable replacement is a good one. You know, Morgan Housels had one of the best arguments for individual investors holding bonds, I've heard, which is basically it prevents you from selling your stocks. So effectively, you know, you, if you have that risk you know, limiting factor in your portfolio, when, the, when stocks go down a lot, you're less likely to sell your stocks. And if your stocks are going to generate a lot of your return over time, then that behavioral component you know, tends to help you. But so you, I guess you, your point is true. You, you need some sort of replacement for that if you're, you know, if you're not going to own bonds.
2: Yeah. And my rebuttal to that, and I agree, it's, it's generally true. Um, it's easy to feel that way looking back over the last 40 years. But what do you do when stocks and bonds go down together like they did several times in the 70s? You know, if you're if you're expecting treasuries to go up when stocks go down, you're already seeing the correlations start to creep up and become positive. What do you do then? Yeah, you don't have many options.
1: Um, I want to ask you, There was one other thing on your list of potential investments you consider or different markets you consider that I thought was interesting, because I didn't even know how you potentially could invest in this. Um, And and that was carbon emissions credits. And so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that works, uh, how, how you can invest in carbon emissions credits.
2: Yeah, so I'm not an expert on investing in them directly. I trade the futures contracts on carbon emission credits, and it's one of the most liquid futures markets in the world. And it has been for a decade now. And most people are still unaware of it. It trades over in Paris. Um, you know, it's a fully regulated CFTC approved, approved um, futures contract and it's a big part of our program. It's also been one of the best trending vehicles for a decade now. Um, my understanding of carbon emission credits is it's a European Union thing where in an attempt to control pollution and carbon release into the atmosphere, the government you know, issues these credits to different corporations and they allow you to pollute up to a certain amount. If you want to pollute more than that amount, you need to go um, buy those credits from someone else. So it incentivizes people to um, uh, curtail their own pollution and then turn around and sell those valuable credits to somebody who doesn't want to spend the money to alter their factories or whatnot. Um, It's an interesting, interesting system. I don't know if it's making a big difference, but I can tell you that it's a very liquid futures market and I'm very appreciative to have it in the portfolio.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I didn't didn't know much about that.
2: The other thing I would add, let me me add one more thing. Um, I'm constantly getting beat up by the crypto guys um, for for not having crypto uh, or Bitcoin or Ethereum in my portfolio. And they're always talking about all the returns they missed out on, blah, blah, blah. What they don't realize is that crypto liquidity in the futures world is actually pretty small. It's the 79th most liquid futures market in the world. Um, What puts it down there with like feeder cattle and palladium and, you know, Japanese platinum relatively illiquid markets that don't move the needle very much, um, but it's true. It went from 10,000 to 40 or 50 or whatever it did, um, but carbon emission credits um, are a deeply liquid market that went up a lot more than crypto did over that same period of time. I think it's gone from 5 to 45 or it's a 9x or something like that, so or, and, uh, and then I turn around and ask him, are you trading carbon emission credits? And the answer is, well, what's that? <laughs> so, you know, there's trends out there that no one are even uh, paying attention to that can be monetized.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, if, if you ask people, you know, what's more liquid carbon emissions credits or Bitcoin, they would tell you clearly, you know, crypto is more liquid. But, you know, the reality is is the opposite of that. So that's interesting. Um just one last question I want to ask on this section is I want to ask you about how you think about, so we talked about some of the assets that go into an all wetter portfolio. The other big component of it is how do you weight those assets and, you know, considering risk and return and, you know, all of that. I'm just wondering if at a high level, if you can talk about how you think about how you do, you know, how you manage the weights between all the assets. and an Right. Portfolio. So
2: here, here's an area where I'm going to have a different answer. And I need to uh, admit that I've changed my thinking on this. Um, I spent the first probably 20 years of my career, putting a really strong emphasis on the aspects of portfolio construction that allow you to maximize the perceived diversification benefit. So in essentially identifying low correlation, low covariance portions of the portfolio and thinking those need to be weighted higher and then finding redundant highly correlated portions of the portfolio and feeling like those need to be reduced because in theory that's beautiful and on paper in a spreadsheet it's amazing it's amazing um but like so many things in life r- real life you know the real um the real experience shows that there's the theory is incomplete so and you can only learn this either vicariously through the experiences of others which i try to do um, or painfully with your own money on your own time and what i've found is that the tendency to trend and the tendency to deliver thick healthy risk premiums corresponds pretty strongly with rising correlations and rising volatility so Now, that doesn't mean go crazy and go out and overweight everything that's highly redundant and correlated, but respect the fact that when you do an honest assessment of your historical profits, um, if you shied away from things that were rising in volatility and correlation, you're shying away from future profits. And if you you dilute them and take those risk units and, and deploy them into things that have lower volatility and lower correlation, you end up overweighting things that aren't trending. And and are having whipsaw conditions, you know, kind of sideways markets, and so y- you need to strike a balance. On one hand, you need to regulate the portfolio risk, but you don't want to do it so much that you're 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 giving more than you get out of that behavior. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So to answer your question, um, I think the question you ask is how do you wait. So uh, it goes back to what I said earlier, where it's, it's liquidity. You know, I, I, I weight the portfolio based upon the liquidity. I have some guardrails, some common sense guardrails, you know, something could become so liquid that it dominates the portfolio. So there are caps in there. Uh, But generally speaking, I just let the liquidity and the markets and the trends tell me where I need to allocate. And once that portfolio is set, then I have a set of rules that decide, well, how much risk do we want to take on that portfolio? What I don't do is go in and chop the portfolio up into pieces and say, hey, this market is, Uh, a good diversifier relative to the rest of them. So let's steal from them, you know, Rob Peter to pay Paul. I used to do that and that's okay. Um, But you're taking some model risk and you're you're essentially embedding a set of rules that take from trends and give to non-trending markets. And that's not what I want to do. So I don't know if that's a good answer, but it's an honest answer.
0: Yeah, I think that's unique. I think, you know, from if an individual investor is trying to think about this concept of an all-weather portfolio, I mean, the, the most simplest might be just, you know, four or five asset classes and equal weight and then rebalance on an annual basis, something like that. But that your, your process is, is, is very um, different. And like you said, it's based on this liquidity sort of factor.
2: You could think of it as market cap weighting across all asset classes. If in futures, you look at open interest as market cap. Yeah. And, and there is rebalancing. It's just the market tells me you know, if, if the hedgers are leaving um, the grains complex, they're getting out of soybeans, they're getting out of corn, they're getting out of soybean oil and canola, that'll show up in lower open interest and my position sizes will naturally and organically decline uh, in that space. And if open interest is increasing in nickel, tin, and zinc, and copper, then my position sizes over there will increase proportionally to that. So there is a granular, slow rebalancing that just kind of follows the liquidity and goes to where I, I believe the hedging demand or the risk premium is.
0: On your website, you had a white paper, and we'll link to this um, in the podcast, but it's multi-asset blend, and you're basically showing the historical drawdowns of a multi-asset blend strategy versus sort of global equities or the stock market and stocks. So I just was wondering, can you just talk to what some of your research has shown in terms of risk, the risk and return profile of the type of strategy we're talking about versus something like the broader market or even something like the 60-40 with the caveat that we know the last 40 years, like we've talked about, have been obviously great for both bonds and stocks. But when we look at what you might expect out of a strategy like this, like how would it look, react and behave over time and in different market environments?
2: So is what you're referring to on the website, does that go back to the year 2000?
0: Yes. Right. Yep. Right. So I don't know if that's the same strategy or slightly different. So I apologize if we're sort of blending here.
2: No, it's okay. Uh, that, that's essentially, um, we view that as kind of a benchmark. So we're using the SG trend index, which is an index of trend following firms uh, that are charging two and 20. You know, so it's it's net of, net of their fees kind of index of big... Uh, trend-following hedge funds, which we view as kind of our peer group. Um, And then we're blending that in with a market-cap-weighted global equity index. I believe it's the MSCI World Index. And it's real simple. I think it's a 50-50 blend, rebalanced annually. So, And that's just to give people... It's to demonstrate the impact of marrying trend-following to global equities and just seeing what that would have looked like over the last 20 years or so. I wish that index went back into the 70s. So my own internal research, I go back into the 60s um, because the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, I think, are more indicative of the future than the 90s and 2000s were. So it's important to get all the seasons in there. If you want to run an all-weather portfolio, you need to know how it did in all the seasons. And almost nobody else in the world is looking at the bad season, which was the 1970s. So uh, to answer your question, um, well, maybe a little background so I'm a data guy. I'm a database guy. So I I've, I went to school. I studied finance, but I studied computational finance and computer science and, and databases were my thing and uh, collecting data, cleaning data, um, reconstructing history as it actually happened rather than just the convenient, you know, what's left over after everything else has been expunged. So I'm talking about survivorship bias, um, understanding these things. So I'm, I'm qualified to go back and recreate history, uh, as it actually unfolded. And that's important because if you don't do that, you get this idealized version that, that doesn't show you all the failure. Like you don't know, like if right now, if you go try to pull up a chart of Enron, it'll say error and no such thing as Enron, you know, but I was trading Enron. I know it was there, right? Lehman gone, pork bellies gone, Deutschmark gone. You have to go back and painstakingly create, um, an accurate version of history and with each passing day you know the the uh, the meme or the, the idealized notion of what history was gets more and more corrupted so doing it correctly um, and then analyzing all the different funds that have ever existed all the hedge funds the mutual funds the USITs, the SMAs the insurance products this massive database it's real easy to um, run a query and say what would have helped? You know, what could I have invested into that actually would have helped a stock and bond portfolio from, say, 1968 to current? And um, it's it's kind of a slap in the face when you realize that 98% of all investable products that have been created are highly correlated with the stock market when it goes down, except for fixed income vehicles. But those are highly correlated with the, the aggregate bond index or the 10-year treasury when it goes down. So it's no wonder that everyone just really sees these two pistons, stocks, bonds, stocks, bonds. But there is one asset class that historically has been very consistent at producing positive returns when in really hostile stock market environments, and it's been consistent at producing positive returns in hostile bond bond environments. But most importantly, it's been consistent at, at producing positive returns when both stocks and bonds go down. And it's this thing called managed futures, systematic global macro trend following, whatever you want to call it. You know, and I first noticed this, you know, back in the late 90s, and I thought, why does no one do this? It's the only thing that really stands up and delivers when you need it the most historically. So I don't know if that's a good answer, but that's how I uh, have confidence in this strategy, because uh, you can look at the weight of the evidence and see that nothing else actually moves the needle. Some people argue for gold. There are times when gold helped a lot. There are other times when it was the worst thing you could have picked. Um, Same thing with, you know, real estate used to be a decent hedge against inflation, not so much anymore with the, you know, the globalization and the financialization of assets is is increased correlations to the point where the only thing I'm comfortable with is um, a relatively aggressive plain vanilla trend following approach applied to a broad, you know, universe of futures contracts. And I don't expect it to work every single time, but it's the best bet. And so all the empirical data backs that up. um, And my experience backs it up. So that's why I, that's why I do it.
0: I wanted to ask you about the, this concept of risk parity. We had Adam Butler on the podcast, which I know, you know, Adam and the guys at Resolve. And, you know, we talked to him about risk parity, but you know, what do you, I don't know, what do you think about the concept of risk parity and how do risk parity portfolios, I guess, differ from your style of investing.
2: So can you elaborate? What do you mean when you say risk parity? Jack,
1: do you want to help me out with this one? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's essentially, I mean, for me, risk parity is, you know, weighting asset classes based on the risk, you know, they contribute to the portfolio. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people tend to think risk parity is stocks and bonds, but risk parity is actually a lot more than that. Um, but, yeah, I, I think the the big concept is, you know, looking at the looking at them relative to the risk they contribute to the portfolio.
2: So what you're describing is an equal risk contribution portfolio of, of stocks, bonds, probably gold, maybe some commodities and maybe uh, something else.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, it's, I guess it depends on who who's implementing it.
2: Um, um, so on paper and in theory, I, I love it. I, I love the concept of equal risk contribution. How could you not? I mean, because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. So why would you just choose one asset class and say that that's the one I want to bet it all on that rather than have, um, you know, four or five things working together as a team? Hopefully they're uncorrelated, and not redundant with one another and just do the prudent thing and make sure that they have relatively equal risk contribution. How could you not love it? Um, again, it's in theory and on paper and on a spreadsheet. I love it. In practice, um, it gets it gets more complicated. Um, you know, back to the the discussion we were having about bonds, how do you justify having a leveraged bond position right now? I'm not, I don't know how to do that. Do you?
1: Yeah, no, that is, that certainly is challenging given the, given what the outlook is for bonds.
2: Right. So, but if you take it out, it has, um, an effect on all the other asset classes. Like the whole thing changes if you take out the bonds. Um, the other one is, you know, gold, um, is gold still gold? is is bitcoin gold um i remember when gold went down for 20 years you know after the 80s and i i got fired from a job for (laughs) for having gold in the portfolio you know in in the year 2000 um, which was the exact bottom in gold so um in practice there are some challenges to running uh risk parity portfolio it does make a lot of sense to me though Uh, i chose not to do it uh because I think there are smart people out there that are going to do a better job than I can at that, and the world doesn't need another doesn't need me to run a risk parity portfolio, but the challenge for me was the the bond thing um the the potential for one asset class to just be out of favor for twenty years, and then the long only nature of it meaning like i I am not a believer in being long only commodities i don't think i mean commodity prices might be higher than they were 20 years ago and 40 years ago. That doesn't mean your total return from being long commodities is positive though. You got to pay the storage costs, the transport costs, the insurance, the cost to carry by my calculations is higher than the um, nominal return and the price of the commodity itself. So I, I don't view long only commodities as a legitimate source of return. So therefore, because of this, I end up with this trend falling approach. So hopefully that makes sense. Why do you think trend following works? I mean, what's effectiveness behind it? So here's where I'll be very controversial. Um, I have super strong opinions on on this topic uh, and I've dedicated a healthy portion of my life to analyzing this endless cir- circular reference on why trend, trend following works. Um, I'll, maybe the best way is to share with you a story um, about my um, college years. I went to Wichita State University in Wichita, Kansas, which is you know uh, kind of an ag- that, that's an agricultural part of the world. Um, there's a lot of aircraft manufacturing and a lot of farming and a lot of commodity trading. The Coke Industries is Air KOCH and I think they trade 21% of all the commodities volume in the world on it. some crazy number like that. And I don't know if you guys have ever been to Wichita, Kansas. It is literally the most boring place on the planet to live. It's uh, flat, it's windy. Um, it's scorching hot in the summer. It's freezing cold in the winter and there's absolutely nothing to do. So, but still there's a lot of money there. Um, you know, there was uh, Cargill and Coke industries and Boeing and Raytheon and Cessnas, there's just lots and lots of industrial and agricultural stuff going on. So there's talent there. And, um, I went to the university there and I started a club for finance, like computational finance, people that wanted to kind of merge computer science and finance together. And this was in the mid nineties. So it was before, you know, there was something called quant or uh, computational finance or AI or machine learning or any of that stuff. So over time, I attracted, or this little club attracted people that worked on hedging desks at Cargill and Koch industries and financial engineering types and people doing systematic things. Uh, but mostly on the uh, commercial side, on the hedging side, they weren't they weren't speculators. They weren't uh, trying to trade to make a profit. So I had the unique experience of interacting with these people and comparing notes and, you know, comparing computer code. And, you know, this was before Python. This was before the convenient stuff. I mean, we were using Fortran and C and crappy computer languages like that. Um, it was hard and cryptic. But I learned something and it took me a while. I'm kind of dense and, and um, stubborn, but I just couldn't figure out why these guys are so happy about losing money. Because I would look at what they're doing and I'm like, yeah, but your your annualized return is like negative 2.1%. Um, and these guys, a lot of these guys were from Russia, Belarus. These were all PhDs in like computer engineering and whatnot, and they're working, you know, on the code at, at major companies to build uh, hedging programs. Um, and then one day, after just constantly asking them, "Why are you trying to lose money?" and they said, "Well, they showed me their the, the or they they didn't show it to me, but they explained to me how their compensation worked." And I'm like, "Wait a minute, you, you're not trying to make money. You're, you're actually trying to hedge." Uh, some risk on the balance sheet or the income statement of the company you work for. You're not profit-seeking. So it was my fault for not recognizing that at, anyway, since both of my grandfathers were, were wheat farmers and hog farmers who hedged. Um, I realized these guys are deep and they have huge amounts of money to put to work and they're not profit-seeking like, why do you want to sell markets that are up and buy markets that are down, you know, as they're, they're simply hedging. Sometimes they're hedging input costs by buying markets that are going down. And sometimes they're hedging, um, you know, their output prices by selling markets that are going up. Um, and, and I didn't realize it at the time, but much later on, I realized that I think this is my, my theory is that that's the source of the profit for trend followers. Because we're the only people that are that are consistently willing to stand up and provide them liquidity in their moment of need. I mean, they desperately want to sell rising markets. And they desperately want to buy falling markets. And they're not trying to make money in the futures markets. They're trying to create negative correlation to some terrible risk on their balance sheet. So that's – and if you remember what we talked about earlier, I said, you know, you have to – you have to contribute something valuable, provide some valuable service to the marketplace in order to stay there and compound. I believe trend followers unknowingly provide this situational valuable liquidity to commercial hedgers for which the markets were actually invented for commercial hedgers, not for traders, not for speculators. And trend followers don't even realize that's the source of their profits. So if you realize that, um, it makes life a lot easier because This is the only industry that I've ever come across where people can build a business and not even understand why they do or why what they do works. And I I can't live that way. So I'm constantly trying to refine that theory and have someone, you know, prove me wrong. And no one has yet.
1: It's it's always good to be on the other side of somebody who doesn't have a profit motive. Um, I guess, I guess, you know, for your own long-term returns.
2: Yeah. I've had people ask me, well, why do you want to trade against people that have more market knowledge than you? And I say, well, because they're, they're looking to, they're essentially buying insurance. That's how they view it. So in what, what world would it make sense that the purchaser of insurance would get paid to insure themselves and that the writer, the person you know underwriting the risk on the other side would pay them for the, the, the luxury of, of taking risk from their balance sheet to mine, which is valuable to them, it's not valuable to me. Why would I do that at a loss? It doesn't make any economic sense. So yes, it is a comforting thing to understand uh, and i can 't prove it you know it 's not provable because it 's all circumstantial, and the markets are anonymous, but still it 's helpful
1: We run some uh, long term trend strategies ourselves on equities, and you know, one of the things that happened this year, obviously is the, these types of long term trend, trend strategies struggled a lot because we had such a massive quick decline, then we had a quick bounce back and there's this whole concept out there that the market is sped up and maybe these long-term trend strategies need to be altered now because we're, we're in a different type of environment than we were in the past. And I was wondering what you think about that. I mean, do you think The current market environment or anything that's you know happening going forward would dictate maybe changing the way trend following is implemented or do you think this is maybe more of a short-term thing and we need to focus more on what's worked over the long term
2: i think a better approach is to simply diversify across different speeds to smooth that out because you don't know what's going to work the best going forward so for example i I diversify across six month nine month and 12 month breakouts Cause I don't know which one's going to work. Now the nine month breakout is, is historically been much more profitable than the six or the 12 until about a year ago. And the six is just lights out more profitable than the nine month or the 12 month. But I didn't know that in advance. So by diversifying and you don't have to stop there, you can do four months, you can do 14 months, 16, you got to, you can't go all the way out to five years and you can't go down to two weeks, but there's a nice zone where you can diversify across all of them. I agree that markets feel like they've sped up. I mean, heck, it feels like we've gone through like four full market cycles since the beginning of 2020. Um, and there is um, a feature of markets that are maturing as they get mushier. Um, they get more skew risk, lower signal to noise ratio, which to a, to the human mind feels like things have sped up. Um, but I would also caution you and say like in the 1970s, we had, we had some speed then too, with stocks. I mean, I've run, you know, stock trend following programs in the 1970s and that felt a lot like COVID a couple times. So it's not like we haven't seen it before. So my, you know, for me, I wouldn't go making wholesale changes across the whole system. I would just diversify and make sure I have some short-term, some medium-term and some long-term and be happy with the weighted average of those going forward.
1: That makes sense. Um, we're, we're value investors, so we obviously are very familiar with uh, struggles over the past decade. Um, but trend and a lot of other factors also have, have had a, a tough time you know, coming off a, on the backside of the financial crisis. And I'm wondering just how you look at that period and, and put it in context. I mean, do you think anything has changed with trend following where maybe it won't work as well in the future as it has in the past? Or do you think this is just a period like any other factor where you have these long periods where they don't work and you've got to stay the course through them in order to you know, have success with them?
2: You know, there's no good like satisfying, intellectually honest answer to that. I'll share with you, uh, I think three things, three observations that I made. Um, one, if you just take the trend following returns, you say going back to 1970 and you scramble them and you plot them and you scramble them again and then plot them and you do this, you know, a couple thousand times, you're going to see plenty of 10 year stretches where it felt like the last 10 years um you're gonna see it so it it could just be spurious nonsense where you you just you can't make money every decade you're gonna have a lost decade just like every other asset class has it could be that not sure the other thing i would point out is and and a lot of people don't realize this is that when you invest in a managed futures manager or cta and let's say let's say you guys give me a million dollars and say eric run this futures program for me i only need about a hundred thousand of that to post the margin for the futures contracts. The rest just goes into T-bills. That's what CTAs, they just stick it in T-bills, right? Um, The the 50-year average annualized return for T-bills is 4.7%. That's the 50-year average. But over the last 10 years, it's been closer to zero, right? So if you take a a fund or a program that's had, you know, uh, let's say a 10% or let's just say 12% annualized return for a long time, and you steal five out of that, right? And then you cherry pick a bad start date, and then you cherry pick a bad end date, guess what? You're gonna get a lost decade, right? So a lot of those returns just vaporized that. So if you remove the collateral yield component and say, just show me the trading result returns, and go back to 1970 and just show me those, and if you do it for the old school plain vanilla trend following approaches, I don't see any deterioration. So, I mean, you could make a case that it's it slowed down a little bit, but it' not nothing meaningful enough for me to say, aha, things aren't working as well. So the underlying core premise of trend following, to me, hasn't deteriorated for the old school, uh, simple trend following approaches. I think, so that, that's two things. The third one is in this industry, there's so much pressure to differentiate. And there's so much pressure to justify the 2 and 20 fee structure that i sp- i think people spend way too much time on artificial intelligence and machine learning looking for risk premia that doesn't exist i mean it's not alchemy you don't you're not cre- you can't create risk premia out of thin air and what this does is if you just keep running all these genetic algorithms and machine learning and ai which i went to school for twice um, you're not going to find anything that other people haven't found there's just the structural risk premia have been known You know, you can go read papers from Holbrook working back in the 1940s. He explains it all. That's the structural risk premium. And it hasn't changed. And it's not going to change in the future. So the rest of this stuff is really just, you know, running in circles, chasing your tail, in my opinion, justifying fees. Um, But what it does do is it creates model risk. And it'll tilt you towards whatever has been working recently. And you saw a lot of C. So during COVID, about half the CTAs did terrible, I mean atrociously bad. Some of them were down more than the market. Trend following CTAs. The other half did fantastically well. Right? Why? What is it? What's the difference? Well, the other half stuck with old school trend following approaches because those things worked during COVID. Um, the half that struggled, you know, they're they're real quiet now, but you know at the time. Um, if you read their marketing materials going, you know, pre COVID, it was all about that, you know, we're moving away from trend following, uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not working as well as it used to. Um, we've got all this advanced artificial intelligence and then machine learning and whatnot. And I think that that biased them towards more stock market beta, because that's the only way you could adjust the returns in the, in the five years leading up to it, which explains why they had a 99% correlation with the stock market, you know, for the, for the year before that and the year after it. So, and I can't prove it, but that's my suspicion. So, sorry, I lost. I may have gone off on a tangent there. Did I answer your question?
0: Yeah, no, that was great. You you definitely answered it. Just um, two more questions before we wrap up. Um, I wanted to ask you about sort of investor behavior. We've had Jim O'Shaughnessy on the podcast, and he kind of talks about how there's two failure points for an investor. One is an asset can go down and they can sell at or near the bottom and capitulate. So that's one failure point. The other failure point is an asset or a strategy can deviate a lot from the market and, you know, they might capitulate when they're not getting the returns. Let's say that maybe the stock market is or some other investment strategy. So it seems like that second failure point might be a little bit more of an issue with something like an all weather approach um but can you just talk about how you kind of think about that and manage that type of and try to try to protect your investors and the people following your strategy from that second failure point and sort of giving up at the wrong time
2: oh is a really smart guy um there's a lot of wisdom tied up in that man's head and, and at that firm so i commend you for paying attention uh, I completely agree. You know, those are the two things that create the inflection point where the emotional pain or trauma or whatever is reaches that apex moment where they, you know, empowered to make a decision, and that's usually to do the wrong thing at the wrong time. Um. So we're not talking. So if you run a diversified approach, whether it's all weather, risk parity, anything that's that's increasing the diversification, um, you're probably you've moved in the direction of solving the first problem in that, you know, there's there, you've now have a, a much greater chance of not putting people into a position where they're down 40 for the year or 50 or 60 or 30 or whatever. Um, so you, you, you've done what you can to solve that, that problem and, and maintain something that, that term is expected to have a rate of return. That's competitive with the stock market or 60, 40 portfolio. What you're driving at is the second point, which is, because people are benchmarking you to the S and P 500 or the NASDAQ on an hourly basis, every hour of their life. Um, how do you deal with the situation when, you know, the S and P is up 20 for the year and you're up 11 and they're really upset. So nobody has a great answer to that. The formula that I use is simply being brutally honest with people up front that that's the cost of investing this way. So I can show you, uh, the 50 year kind of window of what just investing in stocks look like. And yeah, it looks great, but the, let's zoom in on the wiggles and you, you can see, you know, if you had a million dollars and now you have 500 grand, how are you going to feel? So on and so forth. And they're like, wow. Okay. Yeah. I get that. That's a little too hot for me. Then you can show them 60, 40. And they say, well, that, that I can deal with that. It makes less money, but you know, it's, it's much more palatable. And then you talk to them about the current bond conundrum and they're like, well, we don't want to do that. That's crazy. So when you show them all weather, and I've done this uh, via experiment where I've anonymized asset classes and I show people all weather, I show them stocks, I show them a balanced portfolio, I show them managed futures on a standalone basis and I let them pick, but they don't, they don't know what they're picking. It's just color coded anonymous and you know, 99 out of hundred people choose all weather and 0% of people choose stocks. Zero. And when I, when I force them to eliminate an asset class and say, well, you got to pick one to get rid of and you'll never invest into it again, almost everyone picks the stock market because they don't know what it is. All they know is it's got huge drawdowns. So, And then when you reveal to them what they picked, they're shocked. They're like, what do you mean I picked something that had managed features in it and I didn't pick stocks? So um, they have to buy into the long-term plan. And it's not that hard to show them that, yeah, there's going to be times where over an 18-month window, the stock market's straight up and all weather's just doing its all weather thing. It just keeps on plodding along, right? And if that's going to drive you crazy, then don't do this. But go into it with your eyes wide open. Understand what it is you're giving up. Then you empower people to make a risk-reward decision, right? If you don't do that up front, then they have to do it in real time. And in real time, all they know is their friends are bragging at the country club and they're up 20% and we're only up nine or 10 and I just, I I feel like I'm getting ripped off or I'm missing something and I just don't like it anymore. So their emotions conspire against them and now you got a problem. So it, it's not a perfect solution, but if you're just brutally honest upfront and you set expectations correctly and you isolate the trade-off, like this is what you're giving up, is that you're going to underperform for you know 12 to 18 month stretches at times. And they can visualize it and look at the magnitude and the duration. And essentially they, they sign a contract in their mind of saying yeah, that's acceptable to me for this low volatility long-term thing um, that I'm getting in return. At least now I know why I'm doing it. So hopefully that makes sense to you guys.
0: Yeah, I love, I mean, I love that be, you know, brutally honest, educate these investors. I love the idea of removing those labels, and then just placing the like, you know, equity curves in front of them and the statistics. And then, you know, they chose, they chose the strategy that you you would, that you would want them to choose, you know, but if maybe you said, would you rather invest in the S&P 500 or all weather immediately, they're going to say, maybe the S&P 500, just given what they know. So I think that that's, that's really, um, that's a really interesting tactic for sure so just to wrap up um, i wanted to ask you about this paper you wrote where you showed that a very small percentage of stocks drove a lot of the market's return over time um, and i think you know one i guess way that people talk about index investing is just invest in the index you're going to get exposure to those stocks don't really worry about trying to pick those stocks because a market cap weighted index is going to have those best performers in there but I think you looked at another sort of approach to this using um, trend following. Um, so I just wanted to sort of hear your thoughts on the research uh, around a small number of stocks generating a lot of the returns, and then you know, what you basically uncovered in that research in that paper.
2: Yeah, so I've written three papers uh, when I was with the previous firm. Uh, the first one I believe was in 2006, and then another one in 2009, another one I think it was 2013. Um, so I'm not sure ex- which one you're referring to, but the concept is is kind of the same throughout all the papers. Um, it's true that a very small minority of stocks are responsible for essentially all of the market's gains. That has been true. And it was true in the U.S., it was true in Canada, it was true in the U.K. So... Now, you can't see this unless you painstakingly go back and reconstruct history as it actually unfolded. You have to include all the delisted stocks. you got to handle all the dividends, mergers, divestitures, um, all the corporate actions. And you need to do that correctly. And that's expensive and time consuming to do, um, but that's, I'm a weirdo. That's my passion. So that's what I did. Um, and it was it was it was fascinating to see that you know more than 100% of the market's gains came from the I think it was the 20% um, strongest stocks over the course of their lifetime uh, which meant collectively the rest of the stocks collectively had a negative um, uh, lifetime compound of return which was fascinating at first until I thought it through and realized that well with a limited liability um, which wasn't always there once you implemented that, then you're going to get a different payoff structure, and it's going to be a winner. It's going to create or it's going to incentivize a winner-take-all system where where there's you know two-thirds of the stocks actually have to underperform. Um, so it basically creates a a different distribution. Um, and and there were two arguments like you like you you correctly articulated. One is well, you could implement a trend-following approach to try to capitalize on this phenomenon by by putting yourself in a position to overweight or, or more strongly participate in that small minority of stocks because I mean clearly they have to keep hitting new all-time highs in order to do this. Um, and then with your stop loss, you could avoid the other stocks. So I did that for a living for a long time. And, and it worked. It worked just as I expected it to. It was pretty good. Um, a lot of people told me, well, that's the greatest. And, and in fact, most people, I would say 8 out of 10 people took that one of those papers and they used it as a justification for indexation. And at first I was scratching my head and I'm like, I was trying to make the case against indexation. Um, what, um, but then after talking with a few of them, I realized that what they're saying is, well, look at the weightings in the index, right? It's slower, but a market cap weighted index is a trend following system. It's just a really dumb one, um, with no risk management. But, but if a stock goes up in in value, they buy more of it. If a stock goes down in value, it gets a smaller weighting. If it goes down enough, it gets kicked out of the index. I mean, that's a slow-moving, brute-force trend-following system just without any risk management. So there are two things I'd like to share with you. One was um, when you adjust for, for for taxable money, and you adjust for transaction costs and turnover and the operational workload and cost associated with running a trend-following program around it, um, you, you you realize that a lot of that alpha disappears, not all of it, but a big chunk of it, you know, and that's just real life. And then because you go uh, to cash um, in hostile market environments and you don't have a lot of exposure, uh, you're gonna miss the rebounds. You always miss the rebounds. And you guys talked about this earlier in a, you know, like well, it's painful to miss the rebounds. Um, and the, and the way you make up for that is by using a modest amount of leverage at the portfolio level to get the compound return back up. Cause you, you got rid of the left skew, but you gave up something for that. But now that you've got rid of a lot of the left skew, you can use a little bit of a gentle amount of leverage to lift it back up. And that's great in a hedge fund format. It's great in a managed account format. Not so great when you're delivering it to retail investors, uh, in a mutual fund or an ETF format, leverage is, uh, is, a, a minefield. So, um, Did it work? Yeah. Did it work better than, than market cap weighted indexation? It depends on your definition of better. So you guys might be wondering why I use market cap weighted indexes and not trend following on stocks on my own all weather program. And it's because that trend following on futures, which I love and I do shares the same blind spot as trend following on stocks. You know, they tend to kind of wash out at the same time and be under allocated at the same time. Um, they're, they're correlated. You know, because they're doing kind of the same thing in different asset classes, but you know, they're they're cousins. They're not first cousins. They're kind of like second or third cousins. But market cap weighted index is very different than trend following on futures. You know, negatively correlated, different families, different DNA, different genetics, completely different, and they blend together beautifully. So that was kind of a surprise to me, Um, and it was a tough decision for me. Well. It was a simple decision, but psychologically it was tough to give up on the, the trend falling on stocks. I felt like I put so much into that, right? So the other thing I would point out, I said there were two things, was that paper, which I got a lot of credit for, uh, my previous firm got a lot of credit for, I felt was nowhere near as important as another paper I wrote that not a single person in the world read or ever talked about. <laughs> it was called the Non-Random Behavior of Declining Stock Prices. Um, which to this day, not a single person has reached out to me. But essentially what I did is I measured the annual calendar year returns for every stock that was in, I think, the Russell 3000 from 1989 to 2008. And I plotted it into a distribution. And it was this beautifully perfect log normal distribution, just like what they taught me in business school, except for one data point was completely way off. Everything else was spot on. You couldn't tell the difference, but there was one data point where real life couldn't be more different than what you get taught in business school. And that was the left tail. It was the left tail. It was a number of stocks that were down more than 70% for the year. It was a huge left tail in real life, no left tail in any of the academic literature. So that tells you what the difference between real life and what you're taught in business school and the assumptions that go into all these models. And that's powerful and valuable information.
0: This has been a, Uh, really interesting, valuable. Uh, I've learned a ton, uh, and I've still got a lot more to learn, I I, I think. Um, but where can uh, investors go to learn more about you, your firm, your research, the strategies you run?
2: Uh, yeah, our website, standpointfunds.com is a great place. Um, uh, we've got a lot of good stuff on there that I think is worth uh, taking a look at.
0: And you're, it's it's a relatively, I mean, you've been in the money management space for geesh, almost, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 years at this point, but, but, but Standpoint's a relatively new firm that you have sort of found, correct?
2: Yeah, yeah. So me and uh, four other partners founded Standpoint in August of 2019. Um, so we are a relatively new firm, but we're some really old souls that work. <laughs> <in. laughs>
0: really old. So you see this gray hair guys? Yeah. Like, I shouldn't be this gray. I see the gray but, beard. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, well, listen, uh, Eric, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And we hope you have a, a good weekend.
2: Awesome. Hey, thanks guys. I appreciate it. And I look forward to the next conversation. Thank you. Take care guys. Bye.
0: Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at at jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.
1: Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Alidia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as
0: investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Alidia Capital.